Hello, and welcome back to The City Speaks. I'm your host, Spark City. This is episode 13, 15, 25, 400, something like that. I think it's 15. And uh, this is actually my second attempt. The first time ever I've had to make two attempts at recording an episode. I recorded one. I recorded this yesterday, or, you know, the day before, and I uh, it just didn't turn out very well. So we're going to try it again. Same topic, and uh, we'll see how it goes this time. So we're going to start off, I'm going to introduce today's topic a little bit later, but right now I want to talk about hyperbole. And for those who don't know, hyperbole is when, you know, something is exaggerated, either for better or worse, either because you love it or because you hate it. Hyperbole is basically just sensationalism. It's over-exaggeration. It's There's a number of different words that kind of all come pretty close to the meaning of hyperbole. Hyperbole, as I think most people have noticed, especially in online culture and especially in the content creation culture, hyperbole is basically what sells these days. And, uh... I, you know, not to date myself here, but I am, uh, I do remember a time on YouTube, especially where clickbait was considered cringe and was considered low effort and menial and gross and lame. Um, And now clickbait is basically the currency. And that has to do with, you know, algorithmic limitations or whatever the algorithms, blah, 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 all that like pseudo arcane nonsense. But I think it's worth remembering that the algorithm is shaped by the people who consume using the algorithm. So if you click on every video that has, 5,000 question marks, all caps title, a pog face in the thumbnail, seven arrows pointing at something that's obscured. Like if you all know the ones, if you continue to consume those, the system is going to continue to show them to you. But it is kind of the tradable currency of content creation and, and other stuff in general. I mean, entertainment media, especially stuff about celebrity gossip and reality shows, that's essentially been their game forever. It just hasn't taken the, the congealed tangible form that clickbait on YouTube or Twitch has. Um, And I think there's a lot of issues with this because fundamentally, I think in a lot of cases, hyperbole is misrepresenting what it is trying to sensationalize in a lot of ways. Um, There's not a lot of things that are the best or the worst thing ever. Most of the time that can only be held by one thing at a time because to be the best, you have to stand alone. To be the worst, you have to stand alone in shittiness. Um, So I think most of us could see the drawbacks to hyperbole and its its ever-present use in our culture. And here's one of the things that I've been thinking about and turning over in my head, and I'm calling it societal snapback because I like alliteration and it's my podcast, so shut up. Um, But essentially, you get this sort of situation where something is sensationalized and hyperbolized in one direction. Let's go with everybody loves it uh, for such a long time that people with dissenting opinions feel like they can't contribute to, you know, the conversation because they either get, you know, shushed or, or booed out of whatever room they're in figuratively speaking, not not in so many words, but I mean, there's not a lot of tolerance for dissension, especially with a popular opinion. So let's take a look at an example of this. I think Harry Potter is an excellent example of this because the culture for the last two decades has been this book is great. This book is literally my everything. It's literally my life. My Patronus is my literal spirit aminal. Um, and so you have this sort of thing where the the predominant discourse around Harry Potter is is very positive. Everybody loves it. Everybody thinks it's great. And I've got no problem with that. If you enjoy it, you enjoy it. Um, But I think what ends up happening is that people who don't enjoy it tend to not really have a way to express that constructively in conversation because people get so into whatever they're into and they love it so much that it doesn't really leave a lot of room to breathe for any any other opinions. Um, And so nowadays, when something happens, like J.K. Rowling repeatedly putting her foot in her own mouth on so many issues and just just taking the weirdest stances and defending them in the worst possible, ugliest ways, 
you know, she's clearly saying some transphobic things and then people are like, hey, maybe you shouldn't do this. And she's like, oh, I'll just, you know, wipe my eyes with my royalty checks. And it's like, even if I want to give you the benefit of the doubt, it's hard to do so because you keep opening your mouth and saying terrible things. Um, And I think we're at the point now, years on, where the time for benefit of the doubt is a little bit past, unfortunately. Um, So now all of a sudden it's like, well, this is this opens the door for we hate J.K. Rowling and therefore we have, have to have a conversation about separating the art from the artist. I always think that when you do it as a reaction to something, it's kind of unfortunate. A lot of people are rightfully saying they don't want to participate in, in the consumption of Harry Potter anymore because and that's that's very much their choice because of J.K. Rowling's attitudes towards trans people and towards, you know, social issues in general like that. A lot of people are saying they don't want to consume her products anymore. And I totally understand that. And I'm on board with that. Um personally. I also think that it's everybody's choice to make and people shouldn't be shamed for making choices because I, I, there's a lot of people out there who will criticize consumption of Harry Potter, but will still consume like Lovecraft's work on the basis that well, like he's dead. So he's not benefiting from it anymore. But it's like, I don't know if a lot of the criticism directed at Harry Potter, and I've, I've observed a lot of this online is that, you know, a lot of her characters are based in stereotypes. Goblins, for example, were created as an, as a very ugly caricature of a, a Jewish moneylender of Jewish moneylenders, plural. And, and so that persists through time. And so, you know, her, you know, her goblins are head of Gringotts, which is the bank in the wizarding world. And so obviously, you know, she's clearly anti-Semitic, which I think personally is a bit of a stretch. I don't remember reading Harry Potter and being like, oh, those dang goblins and their space lasers. But, um, you know, but people who ascribe these negative stereotypes to this, but then still consume works by people like Lovecraft, where a lot of his monsters, you know, a lot of them were cosmic horror, but a lot of his attitudes and the, the feeling of alienness in your own skin and stuff like that, or being an alien in your own skin or being an alien surrounded by aliens was couched in his own racism. He never left his house, like famously rarely ever left his house, was a total recluse and had probably some of the worst opinions on record that he would like write in letters about about people of color. And so, yes, he's dead, so he's not benefiting from it, but you're to criticize the stereotypes in Harry Potter and then completely ignore them in other works strikes me as very selective. Um, and so this is where like separating the art from the artist, I don't think people have actually thought about this too much or a lot of people, I don't think they've thought about how to separate the art from the artist. I'm getting a little off track here, but for me personally, it's, I would, I would enjoy the work not as a product of the artist, but in a vacuum. Now, obviously this is problematic under capitalism. You know, the, the, the communist saying often goes, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. And that is, uh, I think in, you can find many instances where that is, is indeed the case. It's very hard to be ethical with your consumption because usually in capitalism, something has always gone bad behind the scenes. Somebody has been taken advantage of. Some people have been oppressed or whatever. So it is hard to ethically consume under capitalism. Um, but again, you know, if you're going to try and apply that as a universal law, like I don't want to consume anything that isn't 100% ethical, you will not have much. You know, you can't take public, tra- like you can't take railways because those are built by Asian concentration camp workers. Basically, you can't, there's so many different examples of things you can't enjoy because they weren't ethically produced. I mean, a lot of medicine, um, has its roots in, in various areas that are not very, not very good. Um, but anyway, so the concept of time in this situation is, is interesting because apparently removing yourself far enough from this terrible person means their work is now enjoyable. And I think that that sort of belies an underlying inconsistency with saying, well, this person's still alive and still profiting off of this. So the stereotypes 
are inexcusable. Whereas it's like, well, this person's dead, so now the stereotypes are more excusable. I don't, I don't really understand it. If you don't want to support her because you don't want to give her your money, 100%. I think that's the most power any of us have, and you're well within your right to exercise that power. And I, and I, I agree in this case with J.K. Rowling. Um, I would, I would agree that you know not purchasing any of her stuff is probably the most effective way to hurt her. Is it going to hurt her very much? I don't think so. But if you want to actually take a stand and do something. This is, I think, not spending your money is the most effective way to do it. Um, so it's very cool now. Let's get back on topic. Societal snapback. It's very cool now to hate on Harry Potter because J.K. Rowling. You know, obviously, it's, it's tit, tit for tat. Um, you don't want to support her, so you don't want to support the books. But it always, it, it sort of makes me laugh bitterly, obviously, because the situation isn't very funny, but it always makes me laugh when people, you'll have like a, a thread where people are like, here's why you shouldn't buy it, or here's why you should buy it, or whatever, whatever. And there's people who are arguing for or against, and some people more convincingly than others, like you'll have the people who are being like, oh yeah, she's transphobic, so I'm definitely buying it. And you're like, delete your account, delete your account, and go hide in a cave somewhere. I don't know, figure it out. Because um, that's a really weird take to have, like, haha, take that, libs. I don't really understand that personally, but when you when you hate on it because it's jk rowling's work that makes sense because it's about jk rowling but invariably in every thread basically that i've ever seen about this you'll get the people who are like yeah and the book's terrible as well the books are just bad the books are objectively badly written and they're terrible and that that always strikes me as like i could try to think of an equivalent example and the closest thing that my my sleep addled brain could come up with was picture you're in a, in an HR meeting, right? You've got your boss and two HR representatives there. And they're like, hey, listen, you know, your work is really not up to snuff. So we're going to have to let you go. And then one of them's like, yeah, and also you're ugly. It's like, okay, that might be true. You know, that might, uh, that might be what you think about it, about me. Maybe I am, maybe I am a three out of 10 on my best day, but like, that's not really what we're here to talk about. The quality of the writing in the books is not what we're here to talk about. It's we're here to talk about whether you should be ethically consuming them, whether you can ethically consume them now that J.K. Rowling's out as a turf. And I think it, so it feels like a lot of that misplaced anger of like 20 years of people pushing down your opinion and you not feeling like you get to talk. And I think one of the negative things that happens from sensationalization, sensationalism is that you end up pushing everybody with an originally reasonable argument like, hey, maybe it's not the best written book in the entire world. And here's the things that I didn't enjoy about it. You end up pushing them and pushing them away until the only people they can surround themselves with are the other extreme, the other extreme of people who are like, yeah, no, it's objectively badly written. And I know that doesn't sound like an extreme and it's definitely not as extreme as, as some opinions, but saying a work of art is objectively bad is just a is is a logically infallible or a logically fallible statement it's it's a fallacy in a lot of ways because and i'm not saying a work of art a lot of the time work of art takes on this like gaudy like oh it's like the finest praise of all time no this book was created it was written by somebody it came out of a at least a somewhat original ideal idea and so it is a work of art it's a work of creativity it's a work of art. That does not mean it's good. It does not mean it's bad. It cannot mean either of those things because art is almost always purely subjective. Like the only thing you can objectively say about the Harry Potter books is that of the contents, you know, Harry is a kid in the book, he's a character in the book, and that the books exist. You, you can't say objectively that it's good or bad. And this kind of falls back to episode two, where I talked about people not denoting their opinions as opinions with the Elden Ring article, where this, this journalist, I lose that. I use that term pretty loosely. Went on a tear about how one of the characters in Elden Ring is like very clearly, you know, hated on by all of the community because she's a woman. 
And the examples they gave were just like completely ridiculous and and easily provable, easily counterable. And so, but this nowhere in the article was like, I think, or opinion, you know, at the beginning of the article. I don't know if all publications do this, but in a lot of the publications that I read, or at least that pop up on my phone, the article starts off or ends the headline with colon opinion, or it starts with opinion colon, and then it says, you know, whatever. And the whole point is that you're demarking and you're noting that it's an opinion piece. And so when people don't do this, and you have people being like, this is the best book of all time, or this is the worst book of all time. It's it's just bad form. And yes, that might be a bit pedantic. But I think the problem is, is that words like objectively are going to lose their meaning just as literally did five to 10 years ago, where now it just kind of means figuratively sometimes, you know, like this is literally my life. A Harry Potter is literally my spirit animal. We've all heard this. Um, and so when you get this kind of discourse, what ends up happening is people push themselves and each other away and two extremes you you end up with your group of people who thinks harry potter is literally the best and literally my life and then you get the people who are like it's literally objectively badly written and it's like it's not though it's a piece of children's media right so yeah it might not hold to the standards of of some sort of like adult if there are any standards for adult writing but the free market tends to decide you know how well something is written or not and you can't say it's objectively badly written it's children's media man like are you the type of person who reads a dr seuss book is like look at none of these words make any sense garfunkel snaggle what is that i type those into microsoft word red squiggly line underneath not even a word how'd that get by the editors this is objectively badly written it doesn't make any sense you know i i, I get it you know you took a creative writing 101 course i was like that too in philosophy i went into philosophy for for two months and you know, at the end of it, I was like, that's a fallacy. That's false analogy. I was just throwing terms that I around that I heard because, you know, I thought I was smart. It feels like that a lot of the time when people say stuff like objectively, that word pops up everywhere. And there's a lot of cases where people don't actually mean objectively. If you do not like the book, that does not make it objectively badly written. You would have to define objective bad writing. Good luck with that. A, good luck with that on like an actual level of any kind of like philosophical or, or empirical level. And B, Good luck thinking that you have the authority to make that call, you know? So it's it's a tricky thing. And I think it does seem a little pedantic, right, to be like, why everybody should start these things with I think or my opinion is or in my opinion or whatever. But when people don't do that, it starts to get taken seriously. And that's why you get all these like flame wars online and all that stuff. And I think it's really silly. Um, but I think, again, a lot of this, a lot of the products of this sort of like extreme pushback and the blowback of, of when it finally becomes in vogue to hate Harry Potter, people come over the top, like throwing haymakers, like this book is terrible. It's never been good. It's garbage. I burned mine in grade five. Yeah. And you're like, okay, like, whoa, whoa. It kind of reminds me of, you know, when you, if you move out for the first time, this one's for all my adults, kids don't listen. If you move out for the first time and you've got your own place or you're in a dorm or something. And you do that first grocery trip and you just buy all the terrible shit you wanted to eat as a kid all the time. But your parents were like, oh, no, you should probably have like a balanced diet and not give yourself diabetes. Like, I remember the first thing, one of the first things I did was I bought like a one of those pre-made uh, cookie things where they have the cookie dough cut out into little circles and you put them in the oven and it, it just bakes it basically. Um, I had that for dinner one time, 24 little circles of, you know, and I like sugar crashed and all that stuff. And I was like, maybe this isn't the best idea, but it's like that. Uh, or where somebody's raised incredibly fundamentally religious. So they go off to school and start sleeping around because, you know, it's something they've wanted to do, but they've not been allowed to explore it. And they've been told that it's wrong. So finally, when they get the opportunity, it's just like a dam bursting. And that all comes, well, figuratively or literally, but it all comes rushing out and they, they try all this crazy stuff. And 
that's where people get into hard drugs sometimes and it's it's not good it's not a good scene and i think this is kind of obviously a slightly more mild version of this but this is sort of the same force acting here where people are told that their opinion is wrong or doesn't matter or just they don't feel like they can express it um, and they don't feel like they could have an honest good faith conversation about it and so they get pushed down and pushed down and then eventually it comes out as oh this book's objectively badly written it's garbage it's terrible um, and again, this is like the person in the HR meeting calling you ugly as they're firing you. It's like, sure, that's a conversation that you can have if you want to. I mean, maybe not by an HR person, but that's not what we're here to talk about, you know. And so it feels very tacked on and it feels very weird that people it feels like they're exercising demons in like just the wrong place, you know. Um, but it's also con- contrarianism and con- contradicting this sort of sensationalism is also a, a industry in its own right. How many people have made YouTube careers off of being like, hey, you know this universally loved slash hated thing? Here's why it's actually terrible slash amazing. Delete where appropriate. And, you know, and it's it's just well documented. And a lot of people I follow on Twitter make the joke about that where it's like, okay, so how many, how many years is it going to take till somebody makes a YouTube video about like Velma being good or something like that? And even in that vein, like Velma came out universally panned pretty much across the board you don't see you didn't see many people defending it in the first week gets like a 1.3 out of 10 on imdb like lowest rated cartoon show of all time and then of course after about a week when the internet sort of crystallized into a position you get the people looking at it being like all right now's my chance to really make a splash with this huge opinion i think velma's objectively funny and it's like super well written and it's subversive and blah 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 and it's like okay we get it you're really different That does not make that's not a personality trait, like being contrarian for its own sake. And there are probably people who enjoyed Velma. So I'm not talking about and those people usually keep it to themselves because most people hate the show. Um, But the people who come out and they're just so proudly defiant and they're like, actually, um, actually, it's like really good. And you're like, I don't think so. And this is the problem, right? If everybody is hating on Velma and saying it's the worst show since forever, it's absolute garbage. That's all still opinion. And when we don't talk about opinion, you leave room for the people to come back and be like, um, actually, it's actually amazing. And they don't say it's their opinion either. And so now you have this fight between two sides where no one's right. No one's wrong. No one's right. Well, I mean, you're wrong for saying something is objectively good or bad when it's an opinion fundamentally, but nobody's correct. But people feel like they need to take a side. I think a lot of this is born out of people really wanting what they enjoy to be perfect and what they don't enjoy to be terrible and, and useless. Um, I think this comes in an age where, you know, a lot of people are examining ethics of consumption and saying like, hey, maybe we shouldn't consume J.K. Rowling's work since she's transphobic and, and has these opinions that even even if you want to take them at most charitably, she's for an author, she's terrible at wording things. But I think that's pro- part of the problem is you end up in situations where people are taking sides. And like I said, so people want to want to assume that they're they're what they're consuming is is perfect because we have made it, especially in the West, I don't know so much about anywhere else in the world, but especially in North America, what you consume defines you as a person so much. Not just like, oh, I like this kind of music, so that's part of my personality. It's like, oh, I like this, therefore I'm a terrible person or therefore I'm a great person. You know, I only watch PETA talks. I don't, I never eat animals, blah, 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 you know, all that stuff. All these things about like how, what you consume reflecting on you as a person. Um, And I think that's where you start to get into this situation where now you feel the need and people more than ever, I think, feel the need to justify why they like something. And so that's that might be the reason why you end up getting celebrities, you know, icons, even books, media put up on pedestals as like, this is amazing. This is fantastic. Um, When in reality, these are all just works of art and we should probably just appreciate them for what they are. For example, Bioshock is a great example. 
Bioshock is a video game that came out in, I think, 2007. And it was by uh, directed by Ken Levine, who's been in, in the industry for a long time. Um, he is notoriously difficult to work with, you know? It's sort of like... And it's funny how, if you think about the reputation that Hitchcock may be a bit different because he was he was weird. But Stanley Kubrick, for example, was a very demanding director. And you got to wonder if... if if today, you know, we're, we're talking about Ken Levine being difficult to work with and, and being curmudgeonly and all the stuff that he's, you know, that his former employees say about him. If would Kubrick have been able to make any movies if he was forcing actors to do 147 takes of a scene today? I don't know. It, it would. It's really interesting to think about. I'm not sure. I would have to think about it more. This is just something that's coming to me right now. But Bioshock is an interesting example because the game is very enjoyable. It's a critically acclaimed game. A lot of people who have bought it enjoy it which means, generally speaking, consensus is that the public opinion, not public fact, but public opinion, regards it quite highly. Ken Levine, there was a piece that came out on him a couple, uh, maybe a year or two ago, or a couple years ago at this point, where it detailed why he was really hard to work with, and it was your typical, like, egotistic director stuff, where he was just like, nope, my way or the highway, I'm terrible at communicating, I'm, I often belittle people sometimes, maybe, um... You know, and and so stuff like that, you look at that and you're like, oh, man, that's not cool. But again, we the conversation about consumption under capitalism and, and doing it ethically is so like it's so impossible, it feels like, to enjoy anything. So rather than say like, oh, I liked Bioshock, therefore Ken Levine is a great person, just say I liked Bioshock. You know, we're we all love the tortured artist you know, thing where it's like, oh, the best the best art comes from pain. The best art comes from an, an internal struggle. There is a lot of art that has to be made collectively these days, movies, music, video games, even even book publishing and stuff like that. And so I think that when you get this collaboration, you can you open yourself up to a chain being only as strong as its weakest link. It only is unobjectionable as its l- most objectionable person, I guess, if that makes sense. So Ken Levine being difficult to work with and stuff like that, I don't think we should be you know, taking that as like, that shouldn't taint our enjoyment of Bioshock. Um, but if you want to, and you hear that and you're like, no, I don't want to support a guy who does that. I, don't, I want to support somebody who's like a team player and, and works well with people and stuff like that and gets results in a more positive way. You have the option of not buying it. And again, I think that's the most powerful thing. And I think I don't mind articles like that because it helps you make a more informed decision as, as a consumer. What I don't like is when we get into like witch hunts about people being like, oh man, you played, you like Bioshock? Ken Levine's an asshole. It's like, yeah, but he was not the only person responsible for making that game. There were tons of people who put their blood, sweat, and tears into it. And yes, he's he's hard to work with. He's a prickly guy. He's egotistical as a lot of directors are. But that shouldn't negate the fact that the game is still enjoyable. What it can do is allow you as a person to decide whether you personally think it's ethical to purchase this game knowing what Ken Levine is like. And I don't think in a lot of, in, in all but the most extreme cases, I don't think anybody should be shamed for for what they consume just because they consume it. Now, again, if you have the opinion like, ooh, I'm going to buy the new HP game because I love transphobia, then yeah, I mean, you probably need to look in a mirror a little bit and, and re-examine your feelings about some stuff. So that would be an extreme example. But if somebody comes along and is like, I really liked Harry Potter as a kid, and it was very important to me, it was significant, it got me through some dark times, or it it made me a better person, and it helped me think about things in a different way that ended up being a positive impact on my life, and they want to play a game that's set in that universe, I don't think they should be, they should be held to, you know, the standard of, like, being burnt at the stake for this. I understand that, you know, that the... the 
the idea that consuming this enforces the, these messages that J, uh, J.K. Rowling sends and all that stuff. I understand that argument. But again, I think it's one of those things where like in this case, as entertainment media, maybe you could be a little bit more understanding about it. And the reason I won't be playing it is because I've got a lot of great games to play. I played a lot of great games last year. I'm sure great ones are going to come out this year. Missing a game for something like this is completely acceptable. So I won't be streaming this game um, personally. But if anybody else is streaming it, I don't care. And I think we need to care a little bit less about what other people are doing, because at the end of the day, the main reasons that people don't want you to play it is because a it gives jk rowling money which is like again if you don't buy the game if if nobody bought this game the studio would go under jk rowling wouldn't feel it she probably gets pennies on the dollar for anything that comes out of the game she's already a billionaire like so are you really hurting her and i get that it's the principle behind it but if you're going to argue do, taking a practical measure i think you should probably assess the practicality of what you're what you're doing i get the principle of like denying whatever you can you should make it easier for her to earn a living but she in her own words it's not going to hurt her so i think that metric or that judgment doesn't really hold up that well um it's it's a tricky thing man i i don't really know i and this is why you know i can't bring myself to accost anybody and in all but the most extreme cases like i said i can't bring myself to accost anybody for wanting to enjoy a world that they fell in love with as a kid for that reason i i can't it just doesn't make any sense to me i'm not going to be playing it because i've made my own decision on it but if somebody wants to play it because they really care about the world and really want to play the game or even for a shallow reason like they want to try and get views while the game is popular whatever man it's it's going to be the nature of things because I think if you start saying like, well, you have to consume this ethically, there are probably, I mean, there's a lot of people who played high on life and really enjoyed it. And Justin Roiland's been under investigation for, you know, domestic abuse recently. And Ken Levine's hard to work with and maybe a bit of an asshole. And, you know, how far do you want to push this? Is there any video game ever that's been created in such a way where everybody on the team got along all the time and nobody had any major incidents, no stress boiled over and people called each other names or whatever? I don't know. I don't know. And we will never know for the most part, because most companies won't talk about it unless it's something very serious, like, you know, sexual assault or harassment or whatever. So it becomes increasingly tricky. And I'm not saying that you should just tune out and not think about it and and blind yourself to it. Educate yourself. Read these articles about Ken Levine. Read these articles about JK Rowling. Read what she's written. Try to understand what she's, what she's saying. If it resonates with you, if it doesn't resonate with you, I mean, especially recently, it's been increasingly hard to even give her, like I said, the benefit of the doubt. When I read her original essay, I wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt um, because I do think, you know, that I, I'm not sure if her heart was in the right place. But at least some of what she said, I could see it as as not being like it wasn't an attack on somebody else. It was the defense of a group of people that she felt very strongly about. Was it worded correctly? People have decided that it was not. Um, but now it's like, I'm crying all the way to the bank and stuff. It's just, it's awful to see, man. It's like, who are you trying to impress here? (laughs) I don't, I don't know. It's, it's really sad to see. Um, that being said, that's kind of societal snapback. One other interesting one that I'm going to brush on really quickly before the end of the episode here is Eric Clapton is kind of funny for that. Try going onto music Twitter and finding somebody under the age of 30 who thinks Clapton is good, you know? And I don't know, again, this could be a product of our parents hyping him up as, you know, the greatest guitarist of their generation, when that is a statement that is just not backed up by anything other than just an adoration for him. Um, 
he's I think he's a very talented guitarist I'm not a huge fan of his music personally but I can understand why if you're a blues fan you're into it but then the, the classic thing that comes back is that now in this generation it's like we've found a whole bunch of us who are just gonna hate on him because we're young and we're tired of hearing about how good he is and then you start getting other people being like yeah and he stole blues from black people it's like I don't know about that I mean he is clearly a blues musician and blues is a predominantly black music um so I don't, but I don't know about stole. Like, I think that's, isn't, isn't the whole point of music that it's the universal language and we're all playing it and stuff like that. He, he got very successful off of it. And I understand why that leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. But I mean, if <laughs> music is music, man, like nobody owns that shit. It's a, it can be a cultural thing, but I don't think people should be barred from playing music simply because of the color of their skin personally. Um, and, and white people tried to do that back in the day. <laughs> they were like, don't play this kind of music. And, and that was terrible back then. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's better now. Um, but, you know, obviously that's a whole other kettle of fish and a conversation to open and stuff like that. It, there was a, and around this conversation, there was some streamer who, who has a degree in music who went on Twitter and was like, yeah, but like blues is copied 98% from, you know, 19th, 18th century classical European music. And I mean, anybody with a passing interest in music theory knows that that's like just not a very correct statement. And so he was like, yeah, everybody, somebody come on my stream and debate me. I'll, and then like, you know, five minutes in, he got blown the fuck up and had to turn his, you know, turn the debate off and be like, all right, fair enough. I learned stuff today. But then he gets to just move on. The thing that bugs me about this, this lack of opinion denotion is that this guy can come out with a statement like this and say something that is just straight up ill it it's at best extremely ill-informed and at worst factually incorrect you know blues was 98 percent copied from you know 18th century european classical music how do you even quantify that but he gets to say that he gets to talk a whole bunch of nonsense about it he gets five minutes into a debate clearly he's not going to win this he gets blown up and then he just gets it, it it's like it doesn't, didn't happen Nobody looks at him and goes like, wow, this guy's an idiot. I'm out of here. Like, they're just like, yeah, whatever. It's just another day in the office. Can we hold people to higher standards a little bit in some way? You know, it's like sports pundits. This is like a really, really off topic. And I'm just kind of ranting at this point. Sports pundits are the worst. I feel like we need to have like a fact checking system where, you know, all these people who are like, oh, this guy's definitely getting traded to this team in the off season. It's definitely going to happen. You'd have to be an idiot to think it wasn't going to happen. People who do stuff like that, which is basically, again, it's all clickbait, and that's essentially what entertainment media is these days. People who do that should have their results aggregated. Were they right? Were they wrong? Did this person get traded to this team or did they not? And if they're like under a certain cutoff, let's say 50%, they should be fired. Like, just get them out of there. Because again, they're not saying, oh, I think there's a strong chance that so-and-so heads to this team. They're saying like, oh, when you get to that point, when you stop couching it in, in opinion-oriented language and you start just saying, like, this is what's going to happen. And this is, this is you know, the nature of the beast. People are going to listen to that. And I again, so these people are, are grifting a system that clearly works and it's a terrible system and I think it's slightly unethical to grift it like this. But I think as consumers, we all have to be more accountable on this and, and notice that if people are using this kind of language, it's, it's not very good. There's a guy I watch, a YouTube channel I've been watching recently. It's called That's Good Sports. And I what I like about him is that not only is he very self-effacing and, and acknowledges repeatedly that he is not, not an insider expert, but he's just very passionate about football. What I like is that he generally will use this, he and his writing partner will generally use this language of like, I think you have a good chance of this happening in the off season and stuff like that. And, you know, making jokes and all that stuff that are, that are just funny and they're not mean spirited, you know, and he's no problem taking the piss out of himself. And that's, that's the biggest indicator for me, you know, 
everybody being able to make fun of whoever they want is totally fine. And I think that's a goal, a utopia that we should reach for as long as it's in good, good natured. But you also, that also means you have to be able to make fun of yourself. And so when people have that balance, it's incredibly endearing for me. I really like that. It's kind of like, um, now we're just going off. This is my brain on any given day, by the way. So you're welcome for this. If you've ever watched Disney's Tangled, which is the Rapunzel story, um, there's her love interest in that is called Flynn Rider. And he is very, he's like your typical handsome swashbuckling action hero. But the movie is constantly taking the piss out of him, either by like having him get knocked out by Rapunzel with a frying pan or, you know, he's swinging through the air and like slams into a wall or something. But he never loses that like, eventually he, you know, becomes a more flawed character and it's funny, but he never loses that like ho-ho, gung-ho, like overconfident pretty boy attitude. But they're constantly taking the piss out of it. It's, so it's very funny and it, it, he never gets annoying. And I think that that is kind of what, you know, Marvel movies and, and Forspoken and stuff like that, speaking of another thing that's getting snapped back, um, are missing in their dialogue is that if your character is just an unflappable badass all of the time, there's no, it just fades into the white noise and it just becomes like boring dialogue. <clears throat> Whereas if any of these characters were under any actual duress, or if they had any other flaws, or the game was taking the piss out of them in a meta way, then that would make them more endearing, right? Because they they have this, like, they know, you know they know on some level that they're they're getting the worst of stuff, but they have this attitude to keep on keeping on and, you know, being brave in the face of danger and stuff like that. I think that's kind of what's missing, is that you have all of this one quality of they're all positive and they're all super sarcastic and aloof badasses that don't couldn't care about your rules, man. But you don't have a counterbalance. You don't have anything to be like, yeah, they also have this like flawed backstory or the game is also constantly like, you know, Nathan Draking them by grinding, sanding their face off on a wall every five seconds or something. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. This is a complete stream of consciousness. So I think it's a good time to end the episode because, uh, you know, I ran out of things to talk about. Uh, I hope this turned out, I think, a little bit better than my previous episode. I'm happy with this. I'm still going to chop it down a bit. Um, but... I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. Thank you all for listening to my rambly, disconnected nonsense. You know, that The last five, ten minutes of this have really been like, this is where my brain goes. It just makes these weird, arbitrary connections, and I don't know how to turn it off. But it's also kind of fun. So I hope that everybody has a great rest of their week ahead of them. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you for listening, and I appreciate you all very much. Bye-bye.